Morning, ladies and gentlemen. We are going to endeavor to get started. Um, thank you all for being here today. Uh, want to remind everybody, uh, last week, uh, Kara Swallow just absolutely killed it with her uh, My Story presentation, and uh, the podcast is available. It has been uploaded, and you can access that via the church website or your smartphone app. If you were not here, uh, check it out. Um, I want you to think about this before we launch into our lesson today. We'll use this as a little little segue, a little icebreaker. Um, when was the last time you were angry? When was the last time you were angry? And I don't mean like mildly annoyed about the slowpoke person that pulled out in front of you on the highway or, you know, your kids won't put the new toilet paper roll on that thing by the toilet so it makes you mad. That's not the kind of angry I'm talking I'm talking about legit angry. Uh, when was the last time that you were angry and, and what was it that you were, you were mad about? Um, you guys have all been here. I don't feel the need to really go through all of this and review with you again. Uh, we are going to uh, look at the lesson eight, and I wish Jesus hadn't said that. Um, actually, no, I'm sorry, this is lesson nine. John doesn't want me to back up. Um, this is lesson nine. We've got one left after this, and we'll be finished. But uh, just real quick, um, the week before last, last week, Kara presented, did a great job. Uh, the week before that, we looked at family uh, from Mark chapter 3, and uh, we had some really good discussion at the end of that lesson. People asked a lot of questions, stuff I didn't know the answer to, but um, I just want to hit a couple of high points uh, from that lesson. Jesus said, in talking about family, your primary community isn't defined by bloodlines, DNA, or mommies and daddies. Your primary community is made up of the people who follow me. And that nuclear family of moms, dads, and siblings is an earthly prototype of the eternal community that Jesus is creating. So those paternal relationships, sibling relationships, and all of their complexity, their joy, their frustration, their irritation, all of those relationships are designed to give us an insight into what being in brothers and sisters in Christ is all about. Community and family aren't defined by human blood. The parameters and boundaries and safe walls of family are set by divine blood, by the divine blood of Jesus Christ. So this week I want us to, uh, to, to continue with, I wish Jesus hadn't said that. Today we're going to be looking at something Jesus said about not being angry. The last time you were angry anybody what what was it not annoyed or frustrated because you know some little piddling thing but i mean just furious angry man you guys are so spiritual y'all are so close to jesus man y'all don't even get mad That can be a chore. <laughs> right, exactly. Go ahead, sorry. 
I don't remember last time I got like late, like recently angry, but I can remember one time where I was really angry, like to the extent I usually don't get. <laughs> what was it? Do you? I mean, um, can me you and tell? Troy were having some problems, and uh, we had gotten in an argument about something because we were trying to fix some things in our marriage, and I think I threw scissors. Well, okay. That was furious. That was furious. I gotta left you. I know unless I quit. I do not do that often. I think I've done that one time though. Okay. I know the last time I was angry, it was because of a student. My, my kids in class, whenever I was still in the classroom, they used to tell me, Mr. Cooper, we can always tell whenever you start to get mad because you enunciate your words <laughs> and you start using really big words that we don't know what they mean. <laughs> and uh, this kid, and this was just Since a couple... You can't go off in Spanish. This is just a couple of weeks ago. Um, I could see the confusion on his face, you know, whenever I'm talking about his impetuous behavior that consistently defies the parameters that we have set. And he's looking at me like, what does that mean? I know you're mad, but I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> but I was just, oh, I was boiling because of this kid's behavior and just consistently, consistently lying, and it set me off. Um, in 1978, Marvin Gaye released his album, Hear My Dear, and one of the singles released on that album was a song called Anger. I'd never heard it uh, before. It's pretty funky stuff. It, it's, it's real funky. Um, it's full of some pretty deep angst. Uh, some, there's some pretty heavy pathos going on uh, in this song. One of the stanzas says, One more time, anger, more anger. When it's flaming hot, anger burns to the bitter end. Know what I'm talking about. When it cools, I find out too late. I've lost it. Love, 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 dear friend. I said anger will make you sick. Children, oh Jesus, anger destroys your soul. Brother Marvin's words resonate with me. They probably resonate with most of us because just about all of us have been on the planet long enough to say there's at least one time in my life where anger caused me to say something that I probably shouldn't have said or do something that I shouldn't have done, like throw scissors or, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But anger, it's a universal human emotion, uh, which is why we should be just a little bit uncomfortable when, uh, with what Jesus had to say about it. In Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 21 through 26, and I'll read from our good friend, the New Living Translation. It says, uh, Jesus is talking. He says, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment, right? Jesus is talking about one of the Ten Commandments, you know, number six. Thou shalt not commit murder. Verse 22, he says, but I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, now in the King James it says fool, and we'll, we'll talk about that in just a little bit, but New Living Translation, if, if you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court, and if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. 
So if you are presenting a sacrifice at the altar in the temple and you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, leave your sacrifice there at the altar. Go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your sacrifice to God. And when you are on the way to court with your adversary, settle your differences quickly. Otherwise, your accuser may hand you over to the judge who will hand you over to an officer and you will be thrown into prison. And if that happens, you surely won't be free again until you have paid every last penny. Now, the Ten Commandments are difficult enough uh, to take the thou shalt not murder commandment and extend it to include anger. Seems like a bit of a reach. Uh, You know, this is Jesus changing the rules again. Uh, up to this point in my life, I'm pretty proud to say that I have managed to comply with the Sixth Commandment. I have not murdered anybody as of today. Okay, um, But he stops me whenever I start to feel smug and proud about the fact that I've been able to keep that commandment. Because I've gotten angry a lot. And uh, we all have. Now, it manifests itself differently from person to person, and and Steve kind of alluded to that earlier. Some people just explode, and everybody around them knows, yep, he's angry. Some people seethe, they just kind of seethe at a low boil. They, They just run at that, not quite boiling, Steam's not coming out yet, but man, they're, they're close. They're not 212 degrees, they're running about a steady 210 some people's anger is so sharp and subtle, it's like, uh, it's like you're being cut by a sharp knife. You know, you don't even know it happened until like five minutes later and you're looking around like, where's all that blood coming from? And it's coming from you. Um, some people's anger is like that and it, it cuts you without you even realizing it. And we deal with anger in different ways. Uh, some of us ascribe to the Thomas Jefferson strategy and we take deep breaths and count to 10. And if we're really mad, we count to 100. That was Thomas Jefferson's advice. Some of us take up kickboxing or running or golf to burn off what we've pushed down. Now, I I don't play golf, but I can tell from talking to people that play golf that that would not be a good outlet for me (laughs) because I would just get more angry. Um, Some people smash things, throw things. Some of us listen to music. Uh, Some of us go to the doctor and get sedatives. I don't know that I'm necessarily opposed to that. Some people go to the local bar and meditate at the end of the day. And I'm not necessarily ascribing to that particular strategy, but it is how some people handle anger. But whatever the strategy, they don't keep us from getting angry in the first place. And according to Jesus, that's our, that's our problem. That, that's our whole problem right there. Now, I want to be careful uh, today and not, to use an old expression, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Um, because anger is a complex emotion. And uh, it's a complex issue. Is all anger bad? No. It's not. Not all anger is bad. When we see injustice, uh, when we see evil, our emotional response of anger to that injustice, to that evil, is altogether right. I mean, Jesus demonstrated 
that type of response himself. In Mark 3, he talked to some religious leaders, and he got pretty angry. He called them uh, serpents and whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones, and he was angry. In Matthew 21, Jesus was pretty upset with how they were taking advantage of the poor and selling things in the temple, right, and started throwing stuff. He turned over a table and fashioned himself a cord and and drove him out. Slavery, racism, the exploitation of children, uh, the cruel treatment of the disadvantaged. I mean, these are things... uh, and things like them that fit into the category of justifiable, righteous anger. But the problem comes whenever that mutates itself into something that we'll just call self-righteous anger. And that happens whenever I look at the attitudes or I look at the actions of someone else and consider them so outrageous because I could never be guilty of being as bad as those people. It's a self-righteous anger. We no longer um, righteously reflect God's anger at sin, but we're expressing our own sense of uh, moral superiority. And it's, uh, it's an anger born from a flawed uh, perspective that I'm better than that and I could never do that. Because who knows where we would be without grace. So I don't think Jesus was talking about righteous anger in that passage there in Matthew 5. This is a different type of anger. Jesus equates this type of anger with murder. And it gets right to the core of who we are. Our anger matters. Allow me to demonstrate. I found this pretty interesting. Um, been up for a while um, and did a good bit of research this morning into the physiology of anger, found it pretty interesting that um, anger and fear come from the same type of nervous system arousal. Uh, whenever you're afraid, your heart rate goes up, um, arterial tension, we call that blood pressure, increases, uh, the body's production of testosterone increases, there's an adrenaline dump. Um, How many of you have ever come out of a situation where you were very afraid and you, in your recollection of that event, you had what people call tunnel vision? You you were only focused on one thing. You weren't really cognizant of what was going on around you. Um, How many of you ever come through a, a, a point where somebody had you really angry and you used words to describe that event as I saw red. Okay? Can't really remember exactly everything that happened. Don't really remember everything I said. It's because those same physiological responses are going on in our bodies and and in our brains with the chemicals being released that we go through whenever we're afraid, very afraid. It's all connected to that fight-or-flight response, and it's, it's hardwired into our human nature. So imagine with me for a minute that you're on vacation, uh, you're, let's say you're in the, the northwest, and uh, Brian, a grizzly bear, comes along into your little camp, and he's going to eat Eli. Okay? Eli might eat him. <laughs> he might. <laughs> he'll, start 
But your, your instinct as his father, your fight or flight response is going to prove very useful in that situation. Because your instinct is to protect what is dear to you, what you value, what you love, what you hold close. Likewise, what we get angry about reveals what we want to protect, what we want to guard, what we value. Our anger is a surefire way to identify what we really love, what we really desire. In our passage from Matthew 5, Jesus is talking specifically about anger that treats others with contempt. Later on in Matthew 7, Jesus says that a good tree will produce good fruit, and a rotten tree will produce fruit that is inedible. It's no good. So a good place to start when we consider the issue of anger, or whenever we start analyzing our own anger, is to look at the fruit of our anger. Because righteous anger will lead to a measured, appropriate, self-controlled action. It's a measured response. But that wrong anger, that murderous anger, that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 5, is going to see someone, is going to see others as despicable, contemptible, downright annoying. It leads to fights, it leads to bitterness, it leads to envy, it leads to regret. And it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. According to the Bible, the heart is the center of who we are. It informs your decisions, it sparks your passions, it shapes your personality. And God says that our hearts are pretty seriously messed up. There's something wrong with our hearts. Jesus established that He was just as concerned with the state of our hearts as He was with our actions. Why? Because sin is a heart issue. At its core, sin thinks, this is my world and I am God. Sometimes we want things that are wrong, and that's sin. But you know what else is sin? When we want things that are right, but we want them too much. The Bible calls that idolatry. Wanting, loving, and valuing something or someone more than we value God. Example. I might want an obedient child. But if my desire for an obedient child causes me to lose sight of who God is in my life to the point that I explode in rage, then that idol is creating a problem for me. I might want to do well in my work. I, want to be, I might want to be recognized in my, in my workplace as, as doing things well. But if my desire to do my job as perfectly as I can causes me to seethe and boil to the point that I spew curses and vent all types of negative garbage, then that's an idol and it's causing a sin problem for me. So an idol can be anything, a possession, a relationship, an ideal, a job. It's anything in which we find our identity and self-worth. And at the very heart of every wrong anger, you're going to find an idol. 
And that's why our anger is such a big deal to Jesus. It shows what we care about. It shows what we want to protect. It shows that we are worshiping something or someone other than Him. Now, this morning I've seen a lot of pursed eyebrows. So, if you're not too sure about this, I, I asked you whenever we started to think about the last time you were angry. So, if you're not sure about this, I want you to think about the last time you were really angry. What did you want in that moment of anger? What was the underlying desire of your heart at that moment? What did you think you needed in order to make you happy? How did you respond whenever that thing was threatened? And where was Jesus in the middle of all that? Was he front and center? Was he having to take a back seat so that you could do your thing? Because the fundamental problem about the wrong type of anger is that in those moments I'm making everything about me. I am the center of the universe. This has been a personal affront to me. You have done something wrong to me or to my values, or to what I want to protect. It's an egocentric, selfish heart that says, here in this moment, I matter most. That's what it's, that's what's speaking in me. Whenever I call someone a fool, a loser, or an idiot. That I matter most. I want to just digress for a minute here. I, I think... Sometimes we uh, give ourselves this little outlet, you know, the, and you read it in the King James there in Matthew 5. Jesus says, call no man a fool. And you look at it in the original language and the word is raka. How many of y'all have heard this before? It's raka, which means you are incapable of being saved. That is what that, that word means, raka. Someone who is incapable of being saved. So we give ourselves like this little outlet, you know. Well, I'm not saying you can't be saved, I'm just saying you're an idiot. <laughs> And, you know, that's our out, you know. And God might save you, but as far as I'm concerned, you're a moron. So we try to skate that issue, but we are very unsuccessful in doing so because really what, what Jesus is trying to expose there is the attitude of the heart, the perspective of the heart that's saying you are worthless. Not worthless, you are worthless. When I dismiss someone as worthless, I'm, I'm placing myself in a superior position and that's the heart that's saying, I'm better than you. I'm worth more than you. I've got an inside track. I've got more knowledge. I have greater understanding. That's a heart problem. In Jeremiah 17, 9-10, it says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things, and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. 
I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. It's a heart problem. Matt, uh, I'm sorry, Mark chapter 7, verse 21 says, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and adultery. It's a heart problem. And Jesus came to change that. Jesus came to fix the heart problem. He even said it. Now, y'all have heard this scripture before. We often use it as, uh, you know, this is one of those prophecies, those Old Testament prophecies, or a type, right? Jesus is speaking to his people Israel, but we take it and apply it because it talks about things like the Spirit to New Testament theology. In Ezekiel 36, y'all, see if y'all have heard this before. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries, and I will bring you into your own land. Verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart, a new heart, also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. But where does it have to start? It's a heart issue. And this, I might be in a little too cute with this one. I don't know. Y'all let me know if y'all think this is a bit of a stretch. But in Luke chapter 4 and 18, Jesus is standing in the synagogue, right? And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor he hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Now, before looking at this little study, I was like, oh, you're brokenhearted. You're sad. I don't know. Maybe he really, literally meant your heart is broken. There, there's something messed up with your heart, and it needs to be fixed. Too much of a stretch? I don't know. But Jesus came to create a new community where not only is our behavior distinctly different, but our hearts are transformed. So to emphasize this point, Jesus demonstrates the wild change that takes place in the heart of a Christian, one who is like him. Matthew 5 and 23, this is how radical the change is going to be. You are trying to make an offering and a sacrifice in the temple. You are going to church, man. And you are trying to have this moment with God and you remember that your brother or sister has something against you. This is how radical the change is going to be. In that moment, you go make it right. Not the Jason Cooper response, which is, well, if he's got a problem with me, that's his problem. No, Jesus said, your heart is to be so radically changed so transformed by my blood and by my spirit that you will consider the other person above yourself. Kind of like what I did for you. I took the initiative, Jason, to pursue a reconciliation between us. I took the responsibility upon myself to make sure things were right between us. And I want you to do the same. I want you to take on the responsibility to make sure that things are right between you and your brother and your sister, even your enemies. 
It's not all about me and it's not all about you. I want you to be the same. I want you to be like me. Now, I don't, I don't particularly like any of that. I don't like what Jesus had to say about being angry because it, it shows me once again, first of all, that I'm not God. <laughs> I'm not in control. But also his words show me once again that at the heart of my sin is a flawed perspective about him. We're going to get into this in our next series. At the heart of every issue, every problem we have, every sin issue, every self-concept issue, at the heart of every single one of those is a flawed perspective of Him. And His words here about anger show me that. Because in those moments whenever I'm so angry, I'm not seeing Him as a God that wants what's best for me, but as someone who's trying to wreck my plans. Or I react badly because His plans interfere with my plans or His desires undermine my desires. His words about anger show me what I love, what I value, and what I want to protect. And frankly, those things aren't always what they should be. His words about anger point me to a better perspective. That His way is better than my way. So I don't have to get angry about what happens. His words show me that God knows my needs, so I don't have to get angry about what I don't have. His words show me that in Him I have abundant life, so I don't have to get angry when what I've worshipped doesn't satisfy me. His words about anger compel me to take a long, hard look at what I value. So yeah, sometimes I wish He hadn't said it but I'm glad he did. Comments? Questions? Points of contention from the philosophers in the room? Next week, we will endeavor to finish this series and talk about when Jesus said, go ye and make, go ye into all the world and make disciples. So, if you want to spend a little bit of time this week, Ben, looking at that, get some, get some thoughts together. Look at the context, right? Because context matters. We talked about that, right? If we're going to read scripture, we've got to look at context. Context always matters. Look at the context of what's going on there. Why would that be such a problem? Why would I not want Jesus to say that? Why would I be unhappy that he would say, go into all the world and make disciples? We'll tackle that one next week. And uh, then we'll get off of this and move on to the next thing. So anyway, thanks for being here. God bless you.